Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The American Meteorological Society, otherwise known as the AMS, is very close to my heart because I was president back in 2013. During that time, I had to learn about what it takes to lead an organization with thousands of people from different backgrounds, ages, and scientific disciplines, but all with one common passion, the weather. My guest today knows exactly what I'm talking about as she is the current AMS president. Dr. Jenny Evans is a professor at Penn State University and the director of Penn State's Institute for Cyber Science, where she leads over 200 faculty members. But leading AMS is an entirely different ball game, especially when you are the leading organization in the States through its 100 years. Jenny, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm great to be here, Marshall. Yeah, I just want to jump right in because there's something really special going on uh, as the American Meteorological Society celebrates its 100th anniversary. And uh, it's a very important organization in the field of weather and climate. And we're going to dive into all aspects of it because I think there's some things that people know about the AMS. They see AMS on their local broadcaster's name on the TV. But uh, as I have found, and certainly I know you have too, there's a lot that people don't understand about what the AMS and AMS does. And we're going to get into all of that uh, uh, in the next 40 minutes or so. But before I do that, tell us a little bit about you, Jenny. Uh, what made you want to pursue a career in meteorology and, and, and just a gen general uh, overview of your background? Well, I grew up in Australia and I was a maths geek at high school. And in Australia, when you go to university, you just specialize in your major straight away. And so I was doing a double major in applied maths and physics, and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, I didn't feel I had the temperament for that. <laughs> so in my second year, two of our professors said, come and do a, a weekend camp out and see what you can do with maths and relating it to meteorology. So I did that and I was hooked. Wow. So there wasn't necessarily a when I talked to uh, some people on the on the Weather Geeks podcast and on the TV show prior, uh, there was some weather experience or climate related experience. But in your case, though, it was a, a different type of experience or exposure that got you into the field. It was a different exposure that got me into the field. But then when I went to do my PhD, I was trying to think about what I wanted to focus on, and. When I was a young girl, uh, Tropical Cyclone Tracy made landfall in Darwin, Australia on Christmas Day. And as a young child, thinking about would Santa get to those kids and <laughs> what would happen made a big impression. So when I was thinking about my doctoral thesis, that's when I came back to tropical cyclones. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because you're one of the, the leading experts in the world on tropical cyclones, which is the broader class of uh, terminology, terminology that we use for hurricanes, typhoons, and cyclones. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your expertise over the years has been in, in tropical cyclones and some of the contributions that you've made? Well, a couple of things I've done that I think differentiate me. 
are I had a doctoral student come from uh, Bermuda, Mark Gashard, and he came because Bermuda were really impacted by these systems we call subtropical cyclones. For Bermuda, they looked exactly like a tropical cyclone, but to the National Hurricane Centre, they didn't quite meet their definition, and so they weren't naming them. Tell and us a little bit, it, because I think that's a great point before you kind of continue on with your story. Can, can you tell the listeners what a sub, subtropical cyclone is? Because I bet they've heard them in recent, you know, we've had a couple in recent years. So a subtropical cyclone isn't as strong at the surface as it is a little above the ground. Tropical cyclones are strongest right at the ground. And it's also not quite as symmetric and the maximum winds are a bit further from the centre. It's a bit different wind structure. And so um, Mark came to do his PhD to try and understand subtropical cyclones and whether it made sense for them to be brought to the attention of the Hurricane Centre early because the National Hurricane Centre really helps coordinate with the weather services in the Caribbean. Right. And so that's that. Yeah, you've done some work, and I know we've cited some of your work uh, in, in some recent research we've been doing at the University of Georgia. Uh, I, I believe you've done some really important work in terms of extratropical transitioning of, of tropical cyclones or hurricanes as well. Yes, that's been a really exciting aspect of my work for at least the last 20 years. Uh, so extratropical cyclones really impact uh, the mid Atlantic and New England of the US and, of course, Maritime Canada. But what might be more interesting is that they also impact the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal, Ireland, the UK mainland and Scandinavia. So we didn't realise that when I was beginning to do this research, um, initially with Bob Hart, who's now a professor at Florida State. And we started looking at these systems and their evolution. They form in the tropics. They're originally tropical cyclones. And that extratropical transition is the change in structure they undertake as they move out of the tropics. So by the time they get to us in Pennsylvania and beyond, they look like a storm that formed in this area. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that the, a key point um, with these tropical systems, the fuel supplies are primarily from the water, the ocean, but as they transition extra tropical, they're getting their energy from sort of air mass differences. And the, the example that many people might recall or remember, a good example is Hurricane Sandy. Um, it was called a superstorm, but it really was a tropical system that went through an extra tropical transition. Jenny, any thoughts on how uh, Sandy transition and the whole uh, rigmarole about whether that's a Southern term they are just using the whole sort of discussion about whether it should have been called this or that and how it was warned for. Any any thoughts on that from your lens as someone that has done work in this area? Yeah, I think one important thing is as these systems move out of the tropics, that they carry with them all that heat and moisture from the tropics. And so even though they look like a mid-latitude storm, they have the opportunity to have a much bigger impact in terms of weather. And so that makes them critical. At that time, the National Hurricane Centre didn't have a protocol for keeping a name on something that had transitioned to extratropical. And so they wanted to be correct and give people the right signals because 
you know, their information sets off a whole lot of other processes in completely different realms. Right. But, but the folks who study extratropical transition wanted to keep sort of saying this is an important system. And I think that we had to go back and think about how to get the message out, get people more aware of what these systems were. And Sandy was a great focal point for getting people's attention on that. A- a- absolutely. And I, I think you're spot on with that. Now, I want to pivot the discussion a little bit because you're the director of the Institute for Cyber Science. Boy, that sounds like a, a lot of really intricate um, uh, topical matter. Um, it also sounds like it deviates a bit from um, how I know you as someone in the uh, excellent uh, meteorology department there at Penn State. Tell us a little bit about your Institute for Cyber Science and how you got involved in that. Well, first of all, people often ask me, you're a meteorology professor. Why are you directing the Institute for Cyber Science? And our institute looks at uh, research in any field that relies on high-performance computing or big data. And I always say meteorology is the original big data science. So in 1948, von Neumann approached uh, Jules Charney, and of course von Neumann had been involved in ENIAC, in inventing or creating ENIAC, the you know first major computer. And they, and he said, weather forecasting is the ideal thing for this computer. And so in 1950, they produced the first weather forecast. We are the original big data science. That is correct. Yeah. And so, Go ahead. And so I was offered the opportunity to lead this institute. It's an institute that sits all across Penn State. We have faculty we jointly hire with departments. These are tenure-track faculty and then we have the high-performance computational uh, system at Penn State and all the staff who keep that thing at the cutting edge. And so we offer that resource to faculty anywhere at Penn State on any campus, and then we build the community around our co-hires and other faculty who are very heavily involved in the institute. Very interesting. So, uh, yeah, I think that I, I think Jenny just did an excellent job for those of you that are longtime listeners to Weather Geeks or Weather Enthusiasts. I think a lot of people don't realize how intricately tied the field of meteorology is to the evolution of modern day computers. And so I thought that was a really excellent discussion. We're talking with Dr. Jenny Evans, who's a professor at Penn State University and director of uh, Penn State's Institute for Cyber Science. She's also the current president of the American Meteorological Society or the AMS. Going to talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. Be sure to stick around because there's some really interesting things I want to kind of pick Jenny's brain on related to that as a former president myself. Tell us about some of the other roles that you have at Penn State. So currently, uh, my uh, fun job as well is my research with my current PhD students and postdocs. But on the way to the Institute for Cyber Science, I kind of got roped into research administration accidentally when one of my colleagues said, I'm going on sabbatical, I need you to fill in running the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute for eight months. And I didn't feel I was up to it, but (laughs) eventually she wouldn't take no for an answer. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did it. And I just said to the uh, administrative um, leader there, just make sure I don't mess anything up. 
and she was a great help and put me on the right path. Right. So I think one of the things that you see you know, as a professor myself, um, a lot of people, when, when I tell them I'm a professor, they immediately say, well, what do you teach? And I think that's the perception that we are just teachers at universities, particularly sort of major R1, research one level institutions. But clearly you can uh, you see from Jenny's day to day, if you will, uh, she's doing a lot more than teaching. There's a research portfolio. There's an administrative portfolio. There's an advancement of new ideas in science. That, do you do you find that as the perspective on professors as well, that, that we're seen just as teachers? Yeah, I, I agree with you. Most people, when you say you're a professor, they don't ask what research are you doing. They ask, what are you teaching? Yes. And I love the teaching, but as you say, we are asked to do so much beyond the teaching, and I don't think... You know, sometimes people think, well, you're only teaching a small number of hours. You know, why are we paying you? And that's why. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really sort of a mismatch in terms of people's understanding when that research and those institutes that you just described earlier are very important uh, sort of innovation and economic drivers for the university, the state, the nation, and perhaps even the world. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Jenny Evans. Uh, I want to pivot now to the AMS the American Meteorological Society, uh, one of the leading professional societies in the world dealing with atmospheric sciences, whether that's weather, climate, hydrology, and related uh, disciplines. Uh, we also have a very outstanding organization called the National Weather Association. So I want to give a shout out to the NWA. Tell us and tell the listeners who may not be familiar with AMS what the AMS is and what it what it tries to do. Well, as you said, Marshall, the AMS is in its centenary year. And when it began back in 1919, it was mainly a group of weather enthusiasts, but, um, but you know, with a couple who were more in the professional realm. And over the years, we've grown to be, as you said, almost all professionals started off as weather enthusiasts, but we have everyone from someone who likes to take observations in their backyard to someone who's working on very kind of detailed new theoretical understanding and everyone in between, the broadcasters and the people who are inventing new instruments, who are doing the forecasting, who are doing all kinds of research and then taking the weather into other industries people mightn't immediately think of, like utility industries and transportation industries and even the stock market. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I have the pleasure to speak, of speaking today with my colleague, uh, Dr. Jenny Evans, a professor at Penn State University and the current president of the American Meteorological Society, the AMS. You've seen the AMS. You've seen uh, many of you know about it, but some of you, even if you don't know about the details of it, you probably have seen a TV meteorologist that says they're AMS certified. And that, that really is our calling card for a, a lot of people in, in the states. But it's a much broader organization talking with Professor Evans about that right now. Uh, one of the things that I think people don't realize about the AMS that, is that it publishes some of the most credible and well-read scientific journals in the world. Talk about that. 
So I told you I grew up in Australia. I also did my PhD predominantly there, although I visited a couple of US institutions for a number of months. Even in Australia, the American Meteorological Society journals are what we call the journals of record. So if you wanted to publish your research, you wanted to publish in AMS journals because they were the most widely read and they were very credible. The, re the review process makes sure that your article is correct, it's well-written, it's well-researched, and that it fits with previous research we understand, or if it doesn't, that you've provided new and credible evidence for why we should change our thinking. Yeah, that's a great point. Jenny, <coughs> give me your thoughts on, we're in this era now of social media, of people putting out facts about extreme weather, weather forecasts, climate change. And there's this notion that if I tweeted something or if I posted something or if I've even written a report uh, from an organization with my viewpoint on the science, uh, there's this notion that it carries the same weight as the peer review. Talk about why peer-reviewed research is so important to science. Well, as I said, it's critical that we understand the objective facts and we understand that the interpretation of those are objective or the objective data that we've collected or at least that we've done a computer model we know is physically consistent and that we understand the limitations on what we're seeing there. And this is all a critical part of the review process. Now, I will sometimes see something in social media or, you know, on television or a podcast and it will you know, spark interest in me, but then I always go back to the peer-reviewed literature to follow up and make sure that the claims that are being made in that, you know, information are in fact credible and supportable. Yeah, I think that's important. It's it's almost our FDA approval for science. I mean, we don't let food and drugs get out on the market unless they've gone through some kind of a rigorous evaluation and testing. And that's the I, same thing for scientific ideas as well. I really like that. Yeah. What about your, and I mean, and I can certainly add some thoughts on this, but I mean, I want to kind of get your perspective on it. What is a typical, and I, there's not a typical day, but what is it like to be the president of the AMS? What does that actually mean? Because the AMS does have an executive director, Dr. Keith Sider, that sort of runs the day-to-day -day operations of the organization. Uh, hello, Keith Sider, if you're listening. But what is the president's role at the AMS? The, as you said, the AMS, headed by Keith the, at headquarters, has an incredible staff and, and it runs amazingly well. The president is there to bring in a new perspective on the AMS. So the president rotates one year it's from academia, one year from government, one year from industry, and then we rotate. And part of that is getting new perspectives, thinking about the AMS in new ways. Excuse me. Yeah, that's fine. And I, I had to grab a little water myself as well. Now, it's hay fever season. Oh, yeah, we have that, that allergies <laughs> down here as well. We're, we're speaking, by the way, with Dr. Jenny Evans from Penn State University, and she is uh, talking about what some of the roles are of the AMS president. And so to promote that in, that vision that you have, uh, one of the sort of central things you do is you bring together a major 
annual meeting. And of course, the meeting I'm lucky enough to be organising is a centennial meeting. But you also have a role on every American Met Society committee. So you're helping to have input to the new members, the new councillors and president, the award winners, thoughts on statements that we should be putting out either for information or for, um, you know, the community perspective on something that is of critical interest to society. So we most recently put out two statements, one that's on climate change and one that's on open access to data, both of which that are critical to our society. And one thing that I noticed during the time of my tenure as president of AMS, you, you essentially do become the sort of out front face and voice of the organization in some ways when, when the media wants to talk to you or uh, our people have complaints, <laughs> which I dealt with on a couple of issues from time to time as well. But That's- one of the things that I think is important about the face is that there have actually been, and this is not something that's just unique to the AMS. Um, there, there have been some sort of gender challenges in terms of representation in our field. Uh, if I'm not, if I'm correct, you're one of only a handful in the 100-year uh, history of the AMS um, women that have served as the president. I can think of Joanne Simpson and Peggy Lamone uh, and Susan Avery. And Susan Avery. So I, I think you're the fourth. Is that correct? And tell us why that's important. Yes, I am the fourth, and I'll say that Mary Glacken will come in next year as the fifth. That's correct. So we're starting to pick up in terms of the women. I I think it's important just because, you know, everyone brings a different perspective to the AMS presidency, and I do feel that in some ways my experience has been different to my colleagues in how I got where I am. Not better or worse, but different. And that gives me different perspectives on how I see things. And, you know, getting that diversity is important. That's one of the things I'm really promoting in what I'm trying to help people think about this year. Yeah, I, I agree with that as well. You think about 100 years and, and five, um, and, and I think some of that is just a historically a sign of the early times that the AMS was in. But uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased to see it because the AMS's uh, president is voted on by peers. Uh, you, you're elected through a, 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 a process that people are familiar with. Uh, you vote and you select the president and also a group of AMS counselors that serve on the executive council, uh, which is sort of the governing body, if you will, of the organization. So I should make a note there. Please. The council is majority women. Yes. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And we have uh, seven, um, seven commissioners who lead different aspects of the society. So the commission that runs our journal process, the Education and Human Resources Commission, the uh, coordinator, I'm not getting it right, the Future Commission. Yes. And and a number of others. The plan, many others. Planning Commission, I think. is Planning Commission, that's the one I was thinking of. Yes. And many others. Yeah, and that, that's amazing. Five of the seven commissioners are women. And wow. so women are now having a really big impact. And and I think that's important for a, a, a number of reasons. I want to shift the discussion now to something you actually alluded to earlier. Uh, as we are recording this or taping this for airing in the future, uh, it was Earth Day on Monday. The AMS on Earth Day issued 
its latest statement on climate change. Now, I, I resonated with the timing of this because the year, just the year before I uh, became president of AMS, that was the last time we updated the AMS climate change statement. And it was interesting because I think the vast majority of people in the AMS and affiliate with AMS kind of understood and supported it. But there were a few people whining about it. Well, this doesn't represent my, what I think about what's going on. Tell us about the thought process behind releasing the new statement. And do you anticipate any blowback or feedback? Second question first, yes. I think that climate change remains such a controversial issue. And I think most of the uh, people in our field don't understand why. You know, I... um, One of the things we went through many, many iterations with this statement, and it was to be sure that everyone who had a hand in thinking about this statement agreed with the content. So this really is the uh, consensus of AMS members. But it's not everyone. I mean, this is an organization with 13,000, 14,000 members, and you're never going to produce a document that every single person agrees with, so you have to go with the consensus, right? Yeah. Well, you can't produce something that every single person agrees with. I, I, I do get that. But we had a broad number of members who were brought together to work on the statement they came up with the statement after a lot of thought and research and, and discussion. Then it comes to the council who review it and who look and say they're concerned about whether this element is fully formed, they're concerned that there's been new information in the literature that should be considered, and that process goes through until everyone is comfortable that that's what's there is absolutely within what we understand of the field at that time. And I, I, should, oper- uh, I should note that the AMS serves the, the nation, it serves our weather and climate enterprise, and it serves the world uh, has a policy program, an education program. It produces curricula uh, for K-12 through schools. It, it has a, a broad reach. One of the things it tries to do with these information statements and uh, other types of statements that it issues is really uh, inject a, a bit of credibility from a leading science organization in the, the broader narrative on these topics. And that's what we're seeing with this new climate change statement. What, what from your lens, does the AMS hope to accomplish with this statement? As you said before, there's so much out there on social media and many other platforms where people are interpreting the information or are uncomfortable with what's out there and are pushing back on it. And the AMS is, in terms of the US, the body who reflects on this and provides uh, professional, considered and concrete information to the community. This is not meant to be and is not uh, spun in a particular way. As I said, the people who, who developed this and reviewed this are a diverse group. And so it really is our best understanding of the science. And I think when you think about climate change, one thing that's irrefutable is our observations, the concrete thermometers and hygrometers and everything show that the earth has warmed consistently. Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, this, there's 
I don't think the thermometers or the satellites have an agenda. <laughs> I think they are just what they are. And, and that, that's the key point. The AMS and other organizations like the American Geophysical Union, uh, AAAS, leading science organizations have all issued statements that essentially are sort of saying the same thing, which affirm what the National Climate Assessment and the IPCC reports and other reports say. And so uh, essentially these are not sort of some random person in their basement uh, uh, eating uh, Oreo cookies and sipping milk, uh, providing their opinions on climate change. These are scientists that have studied this that have weighed in. And so I think that's very important to understand. Um, what do you see in terms of this discussion that we've seen in the AMS from time to time? I'm, I've been away from the organization a little bit at the leadership level. Uh, in terms of the broadcast community within the AMS and their viewpoint on climate change? Because there, there was a time period, Jenny, where there was this question about, oh, AMS broadcasters or some of them are or contrarian on climate change. Are, are we starting to see any movement on that or have you paid any attention to that aspect of the problem? Yes, I believe that that, that has changed. As we discussed before, there are always going to be people who have a certain perspective. But from talking to the broadcasters since I've been in this position and, and back when I was a counsellor, I really feel that the broadcast community now provides guidance that the weight of the evidence is that the earth is warming and as we say in the statement um, that the indications are extremely likely that human evidence, human influence has been the dominant cause of the observed warming and I believe that that's what the broadcasters are, you know, that this is consistent with the views of the majority of the broadcasters and that's what they're um, teaching or, or giving to the public. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Professor Jenny Evans from Penn State University, who's the current president of the American Meteorological Society and director of Penn State's Institute for Cyber Science. Boy, you have a big event coming up in January at the centennial for the organization, the AMS. I, I, I think this uh, it's a really special time to be president of the AMS. Tell us about what you and your, your colleagues, I know that you have a committee in place that's sort of trying to put together an epic uh, centennial AMS annual meeting. So what is your theme? What are your plans? And what are you finding as your challenges and, and things that you're excited about? So as I said before, and as you just noticed, we get to promote our vision of the field as president. And I think that's one of the most important and um, something I really had to reflect on. And so, of course, in our centennial, we're looking at the AMS past, present and future. And the theme beyond that that I'm focusing on is linking information to knowledge to society. And I think that all pieces of that are critical. So the information coming from our observations, our theoretical context, our computer models, 
all kind of wrapped into a coherent vision of the atmosphere. And that's the translation into knowledge and knowledge further translated into information, you know, such as what's the weather going to be that influences utility uh, company production? And should I take an umbrella or not? And is the climate changing? So this is knowledge created from that base information, and each of those things clearly translates to societal impacts. And so that piece of it, I think, is what we do and what we've done for 100 years. What I'm trying to point out that is that the context of all of that has changed. Now we have a society that's already diverse but we're realising that as we reach out to other professionals, to community groups and so on, we can really build more complete pictures of the atmosphere of the weather and climate and how they influence society and help to make society more resilient. So to provide contextual information in a timely way that's relevant to communities being impacted. Yeah. And, and to do that, we need big data and computer models. And so I guess coming from the Institute for Cyber Science, this perspective maybe isn't surprising. But when you're thinking about something like Hurricane Harvey, for example, you're thinking about the forecast of where's the storm going to go, what are the winds, but also what's the precipitation. And then the people on the ground are thinking, okay, how's that going to turn into flooding? Where's that going to turn into flooding? What are we going to do to get the local community out? That's the on the ground at the moment. But after the fact, how are we going to rebuild? How are we going to think about building a more resilient community? And I think meteorologists have a role in all of those parts of the process. And beyond that, even to think maybe about helping provide information to policymakers so that they can think about how should the framework in which all of this is happening evolve. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important set of statements. And we are all as a part of the community are looking forward to, to your meeting in Boston. And, and Speak, speaking of Boston, go, go ahead and then I'll ask my question. Okay. There was just one more thing. And I started, I talked about it when you asked me about being a woman president for the AMS. And that's thinking about diversity and I don't, and I mean diversity in all of the ways we think about it, diversity of race and culture and diversity of um, sexual identity and diversity in terms of different abilities, but I also mean it in terms of socioeconomic, geographic, education, um, role in society, different ways we contribute to society. And, and I think that's important because when we think about something like climate change, there's going to be decisions made now that are going to affect us in the future. And if we don't have the full perspective of our wider community, we can end up with unintentional sort of social justice and equity issues where people aren't fully engaged or able to be engaged in decisions that are going to directly impact them. I, I completely agree with that, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you make that statement. I was sitting here as you were talking, reflecting on a hundred years. Um, it just it wasn't exactly hundred years, but the I think about the Galveston hurricane uh, early last century and how 
so many people lost their lives in Galveston, Texas, uh, from a hurricane that essentially they didn't even know was coming or they didn't really know the scope of of how large and devastating it was. And it just it just makes me think about so many ways that we have advanced for the good of everyone in this community over 100 years. I mean, I, 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 meteorology is a relatively young field compared to maybe some other sort of uh, older sciences. And I mean, we're still making advances and improvement in forecasting and observational techniques and understanding even within the last 10 or so years. So you, just um, without going into details of sort of specific historical events, you, what are your biggest takeaways from how we've advanced in, in your lifetime within the field of meteorology? What, what catches your eye? Well, I'll go back a bit beyond my lifetime, but tropical meteorology began in the middle of the 20th century. Up until then, people hadn't really understood how different the how differently the tropics operated compared to the mid-latitudes, where our initial understanding of how we could translate theory into weather happened. And then, of course, satellite meteorology came along really in common usage in the 70s, And that gave us a completely different perspective. So just focusing on hurricanes, which are, as you pointed out, my first love, uh, we were finally able to see them and see the structure from above to integrate with all the flights that the hurricane hunters and NOAA had been doing over the years. And that gave us new perspectives. And then we were able to delve into computer models and advance the theory Over the last 20 years, the National Hurricane Center's forecasts have the same accuracy three days out now as they used to have only 24 hours ahead. And of course, that allows for people to make decisions much earlier to decide whether they're going to stay or go, decide how they're going to react. And I think that's just amazing. Uh, yeah, I agree. And that that prompts a question uh, just off the top of my head there listening to you. Why, why is it that you think people trust uh, and accept weather information with uncertainty, yet some doubt it when we talk about it from the perspective of climate change? I think you get to observe the weather every day. So meteorologists are really the first scientist anyone comes in contact with. You watch the television, you listen to a podcast, you go online, and there's a meteorologist every day. And you can validate what happened. You can say, I didn't take my umbrella yesterday and it was sunny, or I got rained on. You know you know what happened. I think climate is harder but I think if you're close to climate, for example, our farming community, they're just seeing it on the ground. They're experiencing it. And when you live in it and you're aware of it from year to year, I think that impact is is much more visceral. Yeah, I think we're seeing that even here in the South uh, with farmers and people that live in coastal communities. They may not be scientists, but boy, they, they're noticing that something's going on. So I think that's why you're slowly starting to see the narrative and perspectives change. Now, I did mention that the 100th anniversary meeting is in Boston, and typically AMS meetings, for those that aren't familiar with the organization, have their annual meeting. You know, thousands of people come, and they're typically in January or February. Now, Boston's known to be a bit snowy in January or February. <laughs> why, why did you decide on Boston for this particular meeting? Boston is the original home of the AMS. If if you go to Boston, you can see AMS headquarters 
right up on Beacon Hill, which is a wonderful and historical place uh, that we work from. And so I think it is kind of the heart of, of where we are. And I agree, January is going to be a challenge. And with 5,000 meteorologists converging on Boston in January 2020, can you say blizzard? Yeah, that's right. That's, I, I, I still remember a big ice storm in San Antonio uh, years back at an AMS meeting. But yeah, I, th- I think on the one hand, meteorologists will be thrilled in analyzing the event. But logistically, it could be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I'm planning on going up there a few days early. I don't think it would look good for the president to miss the meeting. Yeah, I think that's right. Any any sort of special events or things uh, that you can tip or tip on, give us a tip on that will be happening there that may be of interest to people that are coming or have has been different than we've seen in the past. Well, we are working to have a big local presence there and to really reach out to the local community in different ways. We've always had an event called Weatherfest that reaches out to the local community, but this is really looking to build beyond that to reach out again to um, the many universities there who have amazing talents, but also the broadcast community and the finance community and the defence industry and I'm forgetting other industries who are critical in that part of, of the U.S., who we think have something to tell us about, you know, how our community can interact more fully with the rest of society. And then we're going to have all kinds of events. We're going to have a big party and and major research. We have, I think, 21 conferences who are all going to be in that one place wow. and 21 symposia and three named symposia honouring senior um leading lights in our field. Wow. It, it, it's going to be a special time. So if you are a, a member of the AMS or weather climate community, please please sort of start making your plans now to be there. If you're listening to this podcast and you um, want to know more about the AMS, be sure to visit the AMS website, www.ametsoc.org. Uh, AMS is also on Facebook and Twitter uh, at the same, at AMETSOC as well. Uh, there are memberships available. You do have to have certain requirements to be a full member of the AMS, but there are also associate memberships. There are student memberships. So we encourage you all to um, kind of get, learn a little bit more about the AMS, a very important organization. We're talking and we have to really end the discussion, but I have one more question uh, for Professor Evans. What is something that you hope to see either the AMS or our broader weather enterprise strive to achieve in the next 100 years? I think over the past 100 years, we've increasingly looked to contribute to society in concrete ways. I think we need to continue doing that. We need to recognise where weather, water and climate are central to societal challenges and to get out and lead, to get out and build coalitions and collaborations that are really going to help to build a more resilient society. And part of that will be working with communities to exchange information, to do education and outreach. And part of that's advancing technology, advancing our understanding and finding new ways to look at at what we have in front of us and to communicate that fully. 
And that's where we'll have to end it. Jenny, are, are you on social media or any place that people can follow you if they're interested? I have a Twitter account. It's at Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-L Evans, E-V-A-N-S, all one Jenny Ver- L. Evans. Very good. I think that's a good place to start. And again, as I mentioned earlier, you can also follow the AMS on its various social media accounts as well. And also be sure to check out uh, things that are going on at Penn State's Outstanding, one of the best meteorology programs in the country, and the Institute for Cyber Science. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. You're welcome. I really enjoyed being here. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you.